Hope everybody's doing well today. Welcome to the African History Network show. It's Sunday, July 25th, 2021, and we are live. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number. If you have a question or comment. And I had some topics laid out for today's show, and I was tossing them around seeing uh topics we were going to do updates on and things like that. And some of these topics we're going to move to uh, Monday show. But I got the news today that uh, civil rights leader, civil rights pioneer and uh, uh, teacher, instructor, mathematician, Bob Moses passed away the day at age 86. Bob Moses, 1960s civil rights leader, uh, passed away the day at age 86. He worked with Ella Baker, worked with Fannie Lou Hamer. He helped start the 1964 uh, Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. He co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964. Um, he, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And I saw him in um, Eyes on the Prize. I remember seeing him and eyes on the prize. I, I have the eyes on the prize DVD series. I, I have the series on DVD. I have the box set of it, uh, ordered it from Amazon, the three DVD box set of eyes on the prize is the first installment that deals with 1955 to, uh, about 1965 dealing with the, um, voting rights after 1965. And I remember seeing Bob Moses in, uh, eyes on the prize. So we're going to talk some about uh, Bob Moses. Uh, he developed a reputation for extraordinary calm in the face of violence as he helped to register thousands of voters and trained a generation of activists in Mississippi in the early 1960s. And that was very, very dangerous work. One of the people he worked with and he, he worked with uh, SNCC as well. He was one of the early members of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. He's one of the early members of SNCC, in, uh, which was founded Easter, um, Easter uh, 1960. One of the people he worked with was Charles E. Cobb Jr. Charles E. Cobb Jr. is the author of one of my favorite books, and I have it around here somewhere. I taught two classes today. You got to bear with me because the office is screwed up. I have books everywhere. <laughs> okay, I taught two online uh, African history classes today. Um, but Charles E. Cobb Jr. is the is the author of one of my favorite books about the civil rights movement. One of my favorite books of all time but is about the civil rights movement. It's called this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed. How guns made the civil rights movement possible. That's, that's Charles E. Cobb Jr. And uh, Charles E. Cobb Jr. and Bob Moses um, also wrote a book together called Radical Equations, Radical Equations, Civil Rights from Mississippi to the Algebra Project. And Bob Moses founded the Algebra Project, which is designed to teach um, uh, students, teach uh, children algebra, but teach them philosophy as well, because he had a master's uh, in philosophy, master's of arts in uh, philosophy from Harvard University. So we'll talk um, some about Bob Moses, okay? And then, you know, um, earlier in the week, I think it was earlier this week. I'm on six days a week, so I can't keep my days straight. Early in the week, we talked about um, Jamaica 
uh, petitioning um, Great Britain and Queen Elizabeth II. Petitioning uh, Great Britain and Queen Elizabeth II for reparations. Okay. And we know that uh, Jamaica was a colony of Great Britain after Great Britain took over Jamaica from Spain. Right. And, you know, these are things I, I we, we deal with in, in my online class. And also we know that Jamaica, Haiti, we've, we've been talking about the assassination of Jovenel Moise. And uh, on Friday, either Thursday or Friday show, we talked about uh, um, the uh, Ariel, uh, uh, Ariel Henry being installed as the new prime minister of Haiti. And we know the uh, funeral for Jovenel Moise happened. I think it was Friday. OK, so we've been covering that here on the show and we'll give you another update this week. It's just so much, so much to cover. Um, but Haiti, Jamaica and Cuba are all in the news right now. And these were all island nations, island countries that were conquered by Christopher Columbus in 1492 and 1494. And these island nations are still feeling the uh, they're still feeling the effects of what happened 520 some odd years ago. All right. Jamaica, Haiti and Cuba, they're still feeling the effects of what happened 500 some odd years ago. Uh, so we're going to talk about this. There was a, uh, a segment on the cross connection, Tiffany cross on MSNBC. And she dealt with this and she interviewed, uh, my friend, um, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, associate professor of history at Ohio State University. And Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries is a nephew to one of my teachers, Dr. Leonard Jeffries. And we had Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries here on the show um, last year. I need to reach out to him again. We need to bring him back on to discuss some of these historical topics. But uh, after the passing of John Lewis, uh, uh, middle of last year, uh, July of last year, the passing of John Lewis and then the funeral of John Lewis. We had him on to talk about uh, comments that Bill Clinton made at the funeral of John Lewis and comments that uh, Bill Clinton made about Kwame Ture Stokely Carmichael. Uh, and he said that the for a few years, the civil rights movement went, went in the wrong direction, went in the direction of black power. OK. And he was saying that was the wrong direction. All right. Well, it's important to understand that the Black Power Movement comes out of SNCC's Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Ella Baker helps to found SNCC. And Ella Baker was a co-founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, along with Dr. King. So, you know, contrary to contrary to, to the way they portray this history in school and, you know, cartoons or what have you. Um, Dr. King didn't control the civil rights movement. You know, the, the, the civil rights movement was more than about one person. And I would argue it's more than about individuals. It's about all these unsung heroes and it's about movements of people. It's about groups of people. But we'll talk about I'm going to share that excerpt of uh, the cross connection with you from uh, Tiffany Cross's show dealing with uh, Jamaica petitioning. 
uh, Great Britain for reparations. Britain ruled Jamaica as a forced as a forced labor colony for nearly 200 years, with the Caribbean countries serving as the center of the Atlantic slave trade. So Great Britain is going to take over uh, um, Jamaica from from the Spanish. And as you go through and look at, as these European nations are conquering other people's lands and stealing other and, and taking over other people's countries, you're going to see these European nations, these Europeans that have been fighting each other for hundreds of years. You're going to see them fight each other over these European nations, fight each other over uh, areas in Africa. And prior to them becoming nations, they were kingdoms. They were kingdoms. And you have the, the Vandals and the Visigoths and the Allens, the Picts, the Franks, the Lombards, the Jutes, the Anglos, the Saxons, all of them. And they're going to uh, organize. They're, they're going to be uh, now they're collectively known. This is this is history. This is not me. This, this is not me saying this. They're collectively known as Germanic people or barbarians, because this is when they, they talk about the barbarians. This is who you're talking about, the Vandals, the Visigoths, the Lombards, the Jutes, the Allens, the Anglos, the Saxons, the Franks. These were these were barbarians, Vikings. So they're going to organize themselves into kingdoms. Then from kingdoms, they organize themselves into nation states. So when we see the Spanish and the French and um, the Portuguese and uh, we see the, the, the Dutch and these different European nations fighting each other over these new lands that they're conquering in the in the uh, uh, 1500 late 1400s, 1500s, etc., 1600s. These people have been fighting and killing each other for hundreds of years. So we'll talk about Jamaica. Jamaica, uh, Jamaican officials prepared to demand reparations from the United Kingdom over slavery. It's expected the petition is going to demand uh, somewhere around $10 billion from Jamaica, from uh, Great Britain and Queen Elizabeth II. And this is why I said back May 19th, I think it was 2018, when Meghan Markle married Prince Harry. I said Meghan Markle was marrying into a family of colonizers. I said it then. I said it before I watched the royal wedding. I said it right after I watched the royal wedding. I said she married into a family of colonizers. I'm not calling them colonizers because they're white. I'm calling them colonizers because 100 years ago, Great Britain had colonized one fifth of the world population. They were colonizers. And when you go when you go study what happened in Jamaica, Haiti, Cuba, Puerto Rico, things like this. You're going to see these European nations, especially the British, setting up sugarcane plantations. And these are brutal sugarcane plantations. We see it in Haiti with the with the with the with the uh, Spanish first and then the French. We see it in Jamaica as well. We see it in Cuba today. Uh, sugar, I think, is still one of the top three exports out of Cuba. Today also would have been the 80th birthday of Emmett Till if a white woman named Carolyn Bryant had not lied on Emmett Till. Now, the grill.com has an article about this. There is a um, 
Emmett Till was honored by two Mississippi museums today uh, on his on what would have been his 80th birthday. We know Emmett Till was from Chicago. He was 14 years old. He was killed by uh, J.W. Millam and Roy Bryant. After Roy Bryant's wife, Carolyn Bryant, lied on Emmett Till. But uh, the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and the Museum of Mississippi History, which are both located side by side in Jackson, Mississippi, on Sunday, July 25th, 2021, um, gave a 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. guided tour that highlighted Emmett Till's life and legacy. We know it was in Money, Mississippi, that Emmett Till was lynched August 28th, 1955. And we know that Mississippi, where uh, uh, Bob Moses was organizing African-Americans to gain the right to vote and Fannie Lou Hamer was organizing and, and Charles E. Cobb Jr. was organizing and Megar Evers was organizing. We know Mississippi was the state with the largest number of lynchings from 1882 to 1968. There were 4,743 people lynched in the U.S. from 1882 to 1968—72 percent of them were African Americans. We know 1,297 of them were white people because we know the Klan and other domestic terrorist organizations were not just lynching African Americans, but they were also lynching uh, white Republicans, especially after, war, especially shortly after uh, the Civil War ends and during the Reconstruction era. So. Emmett Till was killed in Money, Mississippi, August 28, 1955. And uh, two uh, museums there honored Emmett Till today. We'll talk some about that also. I'll also give you an update on the new exciting online course, 10-week online course that I'm teaching called From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. 1865 to 1968 from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power 1865 to 1968 this is a 10-week online course um class number one just started uh, saturday july 24th i teach this class on saturdays 3 p.m to 5 p.m eastern standard time 3 p.m to 5 p.m eastern standard time we do the classes live all the sessions are recorded you can watch from around the world, okay? Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, and scroll down the uh, homepage. You'll see the information for our radio show. You can click here to listen to audio podcasts of our shows, but we have the information here for the 10-week online course. This will blow you away. Click on register here. It takes you to the next page. Click on enroll. As soon as you uh, register, you can start watching the course content. Uh, it's regularly $130 is on sale, $80. You can watch class one. We have bonus content there also. Also as a bonus, you'll get my six DVD. You'll get my six, uh, bundle pack, um, dealing with, uh, black migration, 16, 19 to 2019 black migration, 16, 19 to 2019. Okay. You'll get that, uh, as a bonus as well. That's a $60 value. All right, we'll deal with this on the other side of the break. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, the future radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. First station, the oldest radio station in town since 1922. 
Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 a.m. The Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Sunday, uh, July 25th, 2021, and we are live. I uh, hope everybody's doing well. Calling numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the calling number if you have a question or comment. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating and empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world. Because right now, it's correct your own behavior, what you do for yourself, what you do to yourself, and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. You control the radius of a man or a woman's thoughts. You can control the compass of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. We deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We deal with current events and history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues, and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828. Sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Um, let's jump into this information here, then with Bob Moses, then we'll go to the phone lines. Okay, so I, I was reading a, a really good article about Bob Moses uh, from um, this one here is from New York Times. I read the one from the New York Times, Associated Press, and then also uh, the Washington Post as well uh, today. But the uh, New York Times has a, a good piece on uh, Bob Moses. Bob Moses, crusader for civil rights and math education, dies at 86. Now, as of the time of this show, no cause of death has uh, been uh, given yet. But, um, you know, this is a big loss. And he was even though he was I think he was underrated. He probably wasn't. He he he's underrated. He was. um an excellent organizer, but he is not as well known as some other people like a John Lewis or uh, a Megar Evers or something like that. But I mean, they, they referred to him as the uh, Bob um, Taylor branch in the book, parting the waters, Taylor branch in the book, parting the waters, uh, this Pulitzer prize winning account of the early civil rights movement told the New York Times in 1993 when speaking about Bob Moses, he said that uh, in Mississippi, Bob Moses was the equivalent to, uh, he was the equivalent of Martin Luther King. He said in Mississippi, Bob Moses was the equivalent of Martin Luther King. All right. So this is somebody who um, is in eyes on the prize may not be a household name like some other civil rights um, activists and leaders, but is as equally as important. So if we look at this piece here from uh, New York Times, uh, let me pull it back up here. Hold on. Okay. Uh, Bob Moses, crusader for civil rights and math education, dies at 86. Um Bob Moses was a soft-spoken pioneer of the civil rights movement who faced relentless intimidation and brutal violence to register black voters in Mississippi 
in the 1960s, okay, the registered black voters in Mississippi in the 1960s, and who later started a national organization devoted to teaching math as a means to a more equal society. He passed away on Sunday, July 25th, 2021 at his home in Hollywood, Florida. He was 86 years old. His daughter, Maisha Moses, confirmed his death. She did not specify a cause. Now, Bob Moses cut a decidedly different image from other prominent figures in the 1960s, especially those who sought change by working with the country's white political establishment, typically dressed in uh, denim bib overalls and seemingly more comfortable around sharecroppers than senators. Bob Moses insisted that he was an organizer, not a leader, an organizer, not a leader. He said he drew inspiration from uh, from an older generation of civil rights organizers like Ella Baker, a leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and her, quote, uh, quiet work in out of the way places and the commitment of organizers digging into local communities. OK, quiet work in out of the way places and the commitment of organizers digging into local communities. And keep them Ella Baker was a and now to me, Ella Baker is is very much underrated also. Um, you know, John Lewis talked about how this he, John Lewis, um, it was an interview. I think it was on I think it was on NBC. And they were talking about the civil rights movement. They were talking about Dr. King. But John Lewis talked about how the, he talked about the um, the sexism in the civil rights movement. And he talked about how the civil rights movement was led largely by male leaders. Uh, I'm sorry, largely male pro black male Protestant uh, ministers. OK, it was large. Uh, it was led largely by black male Protestant uh, ministers and there was misogyny and sexism going on in the civil rights movement. Uh, and when we study Ella Baker, Ella Baker co-founded SCLC Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957, along with Dr. King. And Ella Baker is going to end up leaving SCLC because Dr. King and other men in SCLC did not think that uh, a woman should hold a permanent leadership position in the SCLC. Ella Baker held an interim leadership position, but Dr. King and others did not think that she should, that a woman should hold a permanent leadership position in the SCLC. So that, you know, Dr. King, I, I love Dr. King, but Dr. King was a sexist also. It's just, it is what it is. That's not talked about a lot, but we have to deal with the sexism also in the civil rights movement, because if we don't, it's not going to go away. If we don't, it's going to continue in our movements if we don't address it. So uh, we're going to go to clip one here in just a second. Um, OK, let's continue. So in the 1960s, Bob Moses was teaching math at um, he was teaching 
uh, math at the private horse man school in Riverdale, uh, Riverdale in the Riverdale section of the Bronx. When scenes of African-Americans picketing and sitting at lunch counters across the South hit him, uh, he said, quote, hit me powerfully in the soul as well as the brain, end quote, he recalled in the book Radical Equations, Civil Rights from Mississippi to the Algebra Project, which he co-wrote with Charles E. Cobb Jr., okay? And Charles E. Cobb Jr. Um, also wrote the book, uh, This Nonviolent Stuff That Gets You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible, which is a powerful book that deals with uh, the armed resistance that took place during the civil rights movement. Because Professor James Small, one of my teachers, told me partially, he said the civil rights movement was not a nonviolent movement. If it had not been for Negroes with guns protecting the civil rights workers, there would not have been a civil rights movement. This is before the Deacons for Defense and Justice were founded in 1964 in Jonesboro, Louisiana. We're talking about before then. We can go back and look at Robert F. Williams and the Black Guard in uh, North Carolina, we can look at the fact that Dr. King owned guns and Dr. King tried to get a concealed pistol license in 1956 during the Montgomery bus boycott. And Dr. King's house was firebombed twice in 1956, once in January and once in September. And the only reason why Dr. King got rid of his guns was because Bayard Rustin convinced him to get rid of his guns. Banker Evers owned guns, Rosa Parks' husband, Raymond Parks owned guns. uh, Fred Shuttlesworth owned guns. We go back to Ida B. Wells. We know, uh, we know, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer owned, shot, uh, she owned guns as well. So there was a coming out of the South. These African Americans are coming from a gun culture. They're coming out of a gun culture. So when they have stories and reenactments and all this stuff, they just showed them with Bibles and singing Negro spirituals, but they had guns and bullets also. They weren't stupid. They knew what they were. They knew they knew what white people were capable of. OK, so that, that that's not shown in a, in a lot of the movies. All right. But the second installment, this the second series of eyes on the prize that dealt with from like the it, it, it dealt with the it starts, I think, with the assassination of Dr. King in 1968. Then it goes through the 70s and 80s. And in that one, they have Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. They talk about Mukasa Dada, Willie Ricks. They interview uh, at least one of the members of the um, this, this footage of an interview with at least one of the members of the Deacons for Defense and Justice, like from this from like the 60s. And they're in their car with a CB radio and their guns protecting the civil rights workers while the civil rights workers do their nonviolent march. You got Negroes with guns over in the cars protecting them. Okay, so this is this is a part of the civil rights history that's not talked about a lot. I'm not sure why it's not talked about. I guess because you can't get corporate sponsorship and stuff like that talking talking like this. Probably why they don't ask me to speak. But uh, (laughs) because I remember I'm telling you, I'm telling you, to be honest with you, I'm telling you, I remember I spoke at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African-American History for the Dr. King Day celebration. And I'm doing a presentation and I start talking about the Deacons for Defense and Justice. I showed a book, okay, about the Deacons for Defense and Justice. Then I showed a book 
from Charles E. Cobb Jr., who and Charles E. Cobb Jr. was a field secretary for uh, SNCC in rural Mississippi for five years, organizing African-Americans for the right to vote. He was working with uh, Bob Moses. And I start talking about um, Charles E. Cobb's book and uh, this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible. And these two, Charles E. Cobb and Bob Moses wrote a book together. Uh, and I, I saw an interview that Roland Martin did on News One Now with Roland Martin on TV One, when it was on TV One. He did it with Charles E. Cobb Jr. And then later that morning, he interviewed Charles E. Cobb Jr. for two hours on when Roland had his nationally, nationally syndicated radio show that I used to guest host a lot. That's how I connected with Roland. I used to guest host his nasty syndicated radio show. So, uh, prof uh, and Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. is a history professor. He's, he was telling all these stories about African-Americans with guns and the civil rights movement and protecting civil rights workers. And he said that when, uh, during Freedom Summer in 64, I think he was talking about Freedom Summer in 64 because he, he, he was talking about when the civil rights organizers came from the north down to Mississippi. He said when they first got down there, he, he said the he said the, the African-Americans down in Mississippi said, we know you're nonviolent, but we're not. And we're not going to let these white people kill you. And he talked about when they were doing their organizing and things like this, and they're going to, from people's houses to house and talking to African-Americans about registering to vote. And they're going to talk to sharecroppers and things like this. He talked about how it was black people with guns that were there protecting them, protecting the civil rights workers. And he said they never stayed at somebody's house who didn't have, he, he, he was, he, what he was saying was everybody's house who they stayed at. All the African-Americans house, houses who they stayed at in Mississippi and in the South in general, but especially Mississippi. He said everybody had a shotgun over like the fireplace or uh, a gun on the nightstand or something like that. He said he said because you, you, you grew up in a gun culture. You grew up on a farm. Oftentimes you have to have a gun to protect your livestock. You, you, you're not living in the. You're not living in the city. You're living in the outskirts. So you're dealing. So, you know, it may be a couple miles or so between you and the next house because you're on a farm, et cetera. And you have to be able to protect yourself. This is the culture that a lot of African-Americans were growing up in during the civil rights movement in the, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, et cetera. Um, I want to go to this clip here. We're going to go to this quick clip here from uh, Eyes on the Prize, guys, and we'll go to the phone lines. This is uh, from Eyes on the Prize and uh, the, the first series, Eyes on the Prize. And this is uh, Bob Moses talking about organizing. Um, let me see. Let's look at this here. This is um, Bob Moses in the early 1960s. He's working with SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Uh, and he's organizing sharecroppers in Greenwood, Mississippi, to demand, to demand the right to vote. All right. Uh, and then also you hear in this 
clip, you'll hear uh, NAACP leader Anzi Moore referenced. Um, and NAACP leader Anzi Moore asked SNCC organizer Bob Moses to open office offices in the state of Mississippi. Okay. And, uh, okay, let's go to this clip. Welcome back to the Real News Network. I'm Paul No, Graham, no, clip one from Eyes on the Prize. Clip number one. Clip number one. That's clip two. Clip one from Eyes on the Prize. Big psychological gap to overcome this. What a lot of people call a psychology of fear on the part of most of the Negroes. They're afraid of losing their jobs. They've been brainwashed. They think that somehow all of this is the business of a white man and it's not something that they're supposed to be doing. We try to uh, meet them in a way that uh, try to get uh, in their environment, use their accent and the way they pronounce the words and things of this nature to bring ourselves a little closer to them. I think we had an incident provoked here by the people who have been in our community trying to stir up some uh, just agitating against uh, well for a general immigration thing, a movement that uh, is uh, our local people have nothing to do with and don't want any part of. And I feel like the outsiders that came in here to, to talk our people into this thing did it. Well, on uh, this past Monday night, a week ago, our house was fired in. Someone shot through the window several times, striking my granddaughter and uh, her cousin and myself. We were shot up badly. But I got uh, some of the tellers of the fans struck me on. Well, I know that I'm a citizen of this country. I'm loyal to all the uh, obligations that they call an article system. I pay over NPR tax. And I just know, and I was reared, born and reared in Mississippi. And I'm a citizen of Mississippi. All right. That is an excerpt from Eyes on the Prize, the first uh, Eyes on the Prize series that deals with from 1955 to uh, about 1965. Um, let's go to the phone lines. Let's go to uh, line one. We have uh, Marathon on line one. Welcome to the African History Network show. Thanks for holding. Tell us where you're calling from, Marathon. Yes, I'm calling from Detroit. I was wondering what role did the Black Panthers play in the Civil Rights Movement? What role did the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense play in the Civil Rights Movement? Yes. Well, they started in Oakland, California, October 1966, and um, they're organizing uh, to uh, uh, monitor the police, protest against police brutality. Uh, they armed, they were uh, arming themselves to protect themselves with the police and protect themselves with the community. But even I would argue that that is important, but I would argue probably as equally as important or possibly even more important were the programs that they put together. Everything from the the uh, breakfast program for children to the sickle cell anemia screening programs uh, to programs delivering uh, delivering food to seniors. They had all types of programs that they put together for the community, for for children for seniors, for adults. They created a newspaper as well so that they can get their information out to uh, people, even into, even into areas where they they uh, may not have been able to physically go. They, they had a, a newspaper as well 
the newspaper helped generate money. I think they charge them like 25 cents or something like that for the newspaper. Newspaper helped generate money, help get their information out also. And then um, they also emphasize learning the law, okay? Uh, learning the law, learning how the law works, learning your rights. Uh, and then they were also a political party. They were the Black Panther Party for self-defense. They were also a political party. So they're going to run political candidates as well. So they were they were um, if they had not uh, been attacked by uh, J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI and things like that, um, you know, there's no telling there's no telling how much they could have accomplished. But, you know, the Black Panther Party for wow. self-defense is significant. And so a lot of times when we see them, you know, we think of. Uh, people with black berets on and, and leather jackets and guns and shotguns and things like this. That's one aspect. But but the programs they put together for the community, man, and getting donations from grocery stores and things like this, the the, the, the organizing portion of the Black Panthers, man, it, it, it's, it's so important. It really needs to be studied. Did they, did they also start Did they start what? As far as well, 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 they, they had the breakfast program and then Head Start is going to start from the federal government after that. OK, they they had the breakfast. They had the breakfast program feeding the children first. And then the breakfast program, they're also teaching them about their history and, and developing self-pride and things like that. See, this is see one. Uh, see, this is once again. They weren't. See, black power was talking about power for black people. OK, and power to control your community, the politics in your community, the economics in your community. So they weren't they weren't an organization with just like empty slogans. They have programs uh, to back up the slogans. OK, now the, the, the term black power is going to be coined by Kwame Ture and Mukasa Dada, really, really Ricks in 1966. And this is before the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is founded. All right. The, uh, the Black Power, the Black Power movement and ideology comes out of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, because Kwame Ture is the chairman of SNCC in 1966. So he wins the chairmanship from John Lewis. John Lewis, and, and see when he went, when Kwame Ture runs the chairmanship. SNCC moves in a different direction. It embraces black power. It embraces black nationalism. And they start pushing the white liberals out of SNCC. So you're going to have people like John Lewis and um, uh, 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 other civil rights leaders who are more uh, beloved community type, integrationist type following Dr. King following Dr. King's ideology of like the beloved community, you're going to have a lot of them leave SNCC and John Lewis, John Lewis leaves SNCC. It wasn't necessarily because he lost the chairmanship. It was because of the direction that SNCC goes in. But, but he told when they first started talking about the black power, when they started talking about the phrase black power and it's going to be in June, June 26, 1966 in Mississippi during the March against fear, which was the march that um, James Meredith was going on to fight against uh, segregation and things like this um, uh, at a speech during the March Against Fear when 
uh, Kwame Ture and, and Dr. King uh, come get out of jail. Uh, Kwame Ture talks about we want black power. We want black power. This is June 26, 1966. And this is like the first time the nation really hears this phrase. OK, uh, but John Lewis. But this comes out of SNCC. But John Lewis tells them that you got to have some programs behind the phrase black power. This is before the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense is founded. John Lewis tells him you got to have some programs for the people behind the phrase black power. It can't just be a phrase. All right. So, yeah, the, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, man, is, is, is uh, very, uh, very significant. All right. Thanks for your call, Marathon. Uh, let me squeeze this in before we go up on a break. When we come back from the break, guys, we're going to go to clip two. And uh, clip two is going to be. Bob Moses talking about uh, the formation of SNCC. We'll go. We'll, we'll deal with that on the other side of the break. Now I want to go back to this article here from. Um, I want to go back to this piece here from the New York Times dealing with uh, Bob Moses, uh, and, and also there's a statement from um, Derek Johnson of the NAACP. Now Bob uh, Bob Moses typically dressed in denim. Uh, denim bib overalls and seemingly more comfortable around sharecroppers than senators. He insisted that he was an organizer, not a leader. He said he drew inspiration from an older generation of civil rights organizers like Ella Baker, uh, a leader of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and her, quote, quiet work in out of the way places and the commitment of organizers digging into local communities, end quote. Now, uh, Derek Johnson, president of the NAACP, said uh, of, Bob, uh, of Bob Moses, he said, quote, he exemplified putting community interests above ego and personal interests. He exemplified putting uh, community interests above ego and personal interests. And uh, Derek Johnson said this in the telephone interview. He said, if you look at his work, he has all he was always pushing local leadership first. If you look at his work, he was always pushing local leadership first. And when you when you watch when you study the civil rights movement and you watch like Eyes on the Prize, they talk about the conflict between local organizations, national organizations, Dr. King, Dr. Uh, uh, the press coming for um uh, Dr. King to speak in, in different cities and different local organizations wanting Dr. King to help. But then it's conflict when it's some type of conflict when uh, the press comes to hear Dr. King. And then when Dr. King leaves, the press goes away. All right. And sometimes you have conflicts over who's going to get credit for what work and et cetera. But uh, then, you, then you're going to have a lot of people who are, who were not in front of the cameras a lot. And for all practical purposes, didn't seek the cameras and the media, things like this. They're they're doing the field work and they're doing work at the local level. Uh, in 1960, Bob Moses left his job as a high school teacher in New York City for Mississippi, where he organized poor, illiterate and rural black residents and quickly became a legend among civil rights organizers in a state in a state known for enforcing segregation with crosses and burnings. 
uh, with cross burnings and lynchings, okay, in the state of Mississippi. We'll continue this on the other side of the break, and uh, we'll also talk about Jamaica petitioning uh, Britain for reparations. Listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Sunday, July 25th, 2021, and we are live. We're in our second hour. If you have a quick question or comment, uh, give us a call, 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call-in number if you have a quick question or comment. Now, first hour, we were talking about the passing a civil rights uh, crusader um, and a crusader for math education as well. Bob Moses, who passed away uh, today at the age of 86. OK, uh, so we're going to continue talking about Bob Moses. He helped start the 1964 uh, Freedom uh, Mississippi Freedom Project, Freedom Summer Project. He co-founded the Mississippi Freedom Democratic uh, Party in 1964 um, as well. And uh, he co-wrote the book Radical Equations, Radical Equations, Civil Rights from Mississippi to the Algebra Project, uh, along with Charles e., Professor Charles E. Cobb, Jr. Uh, he co-wrote that book as well. And he started the um, the Algebra Project. OK, and the Algebra Project um, was a project to teach math and teach uh, philosophy two students also uh in the algebra project um taught a five-step philosophy of teaching that can be applied to any concept a five-step philosophy of teaching that can be applied to any concept now bob moses was also the uh, the inspiration of the uh the movie from uh the year 2000 called Freedom Song, Freedom Song, starring Danny Glover. Uh, he was the inspiration uh, of that movie uh, also, okay? All right, so we're going to continue our discussion here. We're going to go, I'm going to go to this other clip here in just a minute. Uh, this next clip here deals with Bob Moses talking about the formation of SNCC uh, during Easter 1960, Okay. All right. Uh, you can still register for the uh, this new 10 week online course that I'm teaching. Uh, this class meets on Saturdays, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1965, 1865. To, we're actually going to about 1968 um, through the uh, beginning of the Black Power Movement and the assassination of Dr. King. This is a 10 week online course that I teach. Uh, each class will deal with, will go through and analyze an approximately 10 year period of time. We just did class number one yesterday. Uh, all the sessions are, uh, we do the sessions live. You can join us uh, online at my, at my online school. And then all the sessions are recorded. So you can go back and watch them over and over again. Uh, the class is 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the information right there on the homepage at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Uh, we're going to post the link here uh, also. As soon as you register, there's archive uh, that you can watch class number one. There's also archive content that you can watch as well. 
in the first three uh, classes of uh, the other 10-week online course that I teach, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. Uh, we have those first three classes archived when you uh, register for from the Civil War to uh, the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. Okay. And all that's at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And then on Sundays, uh, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, um, uh, we have a new session of um, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, Understanding the Transatlantic Slave Trade, where they didn't teach you in school. We have a new session of that that started up. Uh, so click right here on register here it'll take you to the next page. You can register there for that as well. And uh, all those sessions we do live, but they're archived as well. OK, and we deal with thousands of years of history and what led up to the transatlantic slave trade uh, taking place. So I had to teach. Let's see. I had to teach two. I had to teach one class Saturday and two classes today. All right. So and then do the show. All right. So it's been a busy uh, busy weekend. Okay. How was your weekend? Okay. I know what I was doing. I was, <laughs> I was working. Okay. All right. 313-778-7600 is the call in number. If, uh, you have a, a question or comment, 313-778-7600. Okay. So, uh, right before the break, we we're talking about Bob Moses and I was sharing this, uh, uh, excerpt from uh, the New York Times article dealing with his passing. And we were looking at a statement here for also from Derek Johnson of the NAACP. Now, in the uh, in 1960, Bob Moses left his job as a high school teacher in New York City for Mississippi, where he organized poor, illiterate and rural African-American residents and quickly became a legend among civil rights organizers, quickly became a legend among civil rights organizers. Um, over the next five years, he helped to register thousands of voters and trained a generation of organizers in makeshift freedom schools. And in Mississippi, um, you know, they're dealing with uh, the, the one of the when they, when we talk about segregation, in the South. One of the things that is not talked about in conjunction with segregation, I think as much as it should be, is how segregation was enforced. See, segregation was enforced with cross burnings, beatings, lynchings, but then also 1954 after Brown versus Board of Education, U.S. Supreme Court case that rules that segregation in schools is unconstitutional. The White Citizens Council is going to be founded in Mississippi and the White Citizens Council is going to spread through the South. And the White Citizens Council, they were like the they were like the Klan without the hoods. And they were made up of white bankers and landowners, plantation owners, business owners, things like this. And they organized to maintain segregation. So if you were an African-American farmer and you registered to vote, next thing you know, the bank could call your loan in because the, the president of the bank or somebody was a member of the White Citizens Council. Byron Della Beckwith, who 
assassinated Megar Evers in June of 1963. He was a member of the White Citizens Council. The White Citizens Council in Mississippi is going to throw its weight behind Ross Barnett and get Ross Barnett elected as governor of Mississippi. So one of one of the things we we talk about the beatings and we talk about the uh the church burnings and things like this. But you have to understand in the lynchings, etc. But this was used to enforce the segregation codes, the Jim Crow laws. This was used to enforce segregation. So oftentimes we talk about segregation. Some people talk about segregation. We talk about we own businesses and things like that. Well, that was in some places. Every there, there was still poor, destitute people, even in areas where African Americans own businesses and things like that. You had poor people in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in green, and uh, when you had the Greenwood District and Tulsa's at its height, you had poor people there too. You had poor people who went into South Tulsa to go work for uh, white people. They were domestics. So a lot of times people look at segregation um, retrospectively and talk and say, oh, we, we own businesses and things like that. Yeah, but you don't deal with how segregation was enforced, how the Jim Crow laws were enforced, the domestic terrorism behind enforcing the Jim Crow laws. And even at the height of economic empowerment in this country in the 1920s, you still had a lot of African-Americans in poverty. I'm not, I'm all for economic empowerment. My degree's in business administration. I taught entrepreneurship for seven years and help African-Americans start businesses and get funding for businesses. But at the same time, oftentimes we don't deal with how the segregation was enforced. So, White segregationists, including local law enforcement officials, responded to Bob Moses' efforts with violence. At one point during a voter registration drive, a sheriff's cousin bashed Bob Moses' head with a knife handle. Bleeding, Bob Moses kept going, staggering up the steps of a courthouse to register a couple of African-American farmers. Only then, after he registered the farmers, did he seek medical attention. There was no African-American doctor in the country, in the county, in the county, Bob Moses later wrote. So he had to be driven to another town where nine stitches were sewn into his head. Another time, three Klansmen shot at a car in which Bob Moses was a passenger as it drove through Greenwood, Mississippi, Bob Moses cradled the bleeding driver and managed to bring the careening car to a stop. Arrested and jailed many times, Bob Moses developed a reputation for extraordinary calm in the face of horrific violence. Extraordinary calm in the face of horrific violence. Taylor Branch, the author of the book Parting the Waters, a Pulitzer Prize winning account of the early civil rights movement, told the New York Times in 1993 that, quote, in Mississippi, Bob Moses was the equivalent of Dr. Martin Luther King. In Mississippi, Bob Moses was the equivalent 
of Dr. Martin Luther King. Also, you'll see this, this mural here with uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, and you see Bob Moses wearing glasses as well. That's how he looked in Eyes on the Prize. A mural of civil rights leaders, including Bob Moses, second from the left, was unveiled at Jackson State University in Mississippi on Saturday. Okay, Jackson, Jackson State, Mississippi uh, on Saturday. Now, although less well-known, than some of his fellow organizers, such as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Fannie Lou Hamer, and John Lewis, Bob Moses played a role in many of the turning points in the struggle for civil rights. He volunteered for, he volunteered for and later joined the staff of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, where he focused on voter registration drives across Mississippi, which was extremely dangerous. That was extremely dangerous to that. That's that's when Goodman, Shorner and Cheney were killed, June 21st, 1964, in Philadelphia, Mississippi. He was also a director of the Council of Federated Organizations, another civil rights group in, in, in the state of Mississippi. Bob Moses also helped to start the uh, 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, 1964 Mississippi Freedom Summer Project, which recruited college students in the north to join African-American Mississippians in voter registration campaigns across the state, according to the Martin Luther King Jr. Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. And they and they have a uh, they have a Dr. King Institute online at Stanford University's website. Uh, they have a ton of information there, Dr. King and his writings, the King papers, things like this. Right. And, you know, how should I say this? Um. Uh, I, I would encourage, let me put it like this. Uh, I don't go to a lot of Dr. King Day celebrations. Um, I don't I don't get to speak at a lot of the Dr. King Day celebrations often. Um, so, but the few that I do, the few that I do attend, one would get the impression that even though I know a lot of people mean well and, and things like that, but one would get the impression that a lot of people organizing the uh, Dr. King Day celebrations uh, never really studied Dr. King, uh, never read any of Dr. King's books or anything like that. Um, so that, you know, one, one would get that impression. And I, I remember speaking at, and I'm trying to pull this up here. Let me close this out. I remember speaking at the um, King Day celebration. This was a few years ago. This was, what was this, 20, I think this was before Trump was in office. So it was like 2015, 20, 2015, 2016, something like that. And I'm doing, you know, I'm on stage and I'm doing a presentation dealing with Dr. King and the civil rights movement. And I start talking about how I start talking about the deacons for defense and justice. Okay. And I was, you know, I was younger then, so I, I was probably a little more forceful with it. I know there were children in the audience, so I didn't want to traumatize the children, but 
I started talking about uh, the Deacons for Defense and Justice and how the civil rights movement was not a nonviolent movement. And if it had not been for Negroes with guns, there would not have been a civil rights movement and things like this. You know, I was telling the truth. And then I showed the cover of the book uh, by um, uh, showed the cover of the book, uh, the Deacons for Defense and Justice. And then I showed the cover of the book, um, this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible. And I started dealing with the history. And I said, <laughs> I said, you mean to tell me that the Deacons for Defense and Justice are not part of the civil rights movement? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, they had guns. You, you trying to tell me that uh, 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 Robert F. Williams and the Black Guard is not part of the civil rights movement? You know, I started dealing with the history. Okay, they they ain't asked me to speak again about the King Day celebration. <laughs> I spoke at Kwanzaa celebrations at the Charles Drake Museum. They ain't asked me again to speak at Dr. King Day celebration. You know, I can't figure out why. Because <laughs> they can't invalidate anything that I said. I told the truth. All right, so uh, I want to go to this clip here. This is from um, Real um, Real News. This This deals with uh, the formation of SNCC. This is Bob Moses talking about the formation of SNCC in 1960. Let's go to this clip. Oh, you know what? We're coming up on a break. We'll deal with this on the other side of the break. Um, we're coming up on a break here in a minute. So we'll, we'll squeeze that in on the other side of the break. Uh, let me go back to this article here. Uh, we'll do it a little bit more. And then also we're, we're going to talk about Jamaica petitioning Great Britain uh, for reparations. Okay. You listen to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. The Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in, in a few minutes. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 9, 10 a.m. Superstation, Future Radio. I'm your host, brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Sunday, July 25th, 2021, and we are live. Uh, so right, right before the break, we were talking some more about uh, the passing of uh, civil rights uh, leader, uh, organizer of uh, SNCC, uh, co-founder of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in 1964, founder of the Algebra Project, um, Bob Moses. All right. Now, if you'd like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. PayPal.me forward slash the AHN show. Um, this helps us uh, keep doing the research, stay on the air, keep broadcasting. We're here six days a week. And this is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. When you go to it, it'll, it'll say Michael and show my picture there. These others are fake African History Network cash app accounts that people set up. I've already contacted cash app to try to get these shut down. Uh, and then also at our website, um, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, you can support us through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. OK, uh, the we had a great class on uh, class number one on uh, Saturday of uh, my new online course, 10 week online course from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, okay? And this class, uh, each class will deal with, it's a 10-week online course, each class will deal with uh, a different, will deal with a, approximately a 10-year period of time, 
uh, after from 1865 and then go through Reconstruction and Jim Crow era, civil rights movement, World War One, World War Two. Uh, visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Click on register here and it um, you can register for that 10 week online course. It's regularly $130. It's on sale $80. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded so you can uh, watch it over and over again. And even after the course is over with, even next year, you still have access to uh, the course content. All right. Uh, I want to go to this clip here. This is uh, Bob Moses talking about the uh, formation of uh, SNCC in uh, 1960. Let's go to clip two, please. Welcome back to the Real News Network. I'm Paul J. in Baltimore, and this is Reality Asserts Itself. We're continuing our series of interviews with Bob Moses, who was one of the most influential leaders of the civil rights movement. He's the founder of the Algebra Project. He's also one of the leaders of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. And Bob joins us again in the studio. Thanks for joining us. Yes. So one more time, Bob is an educator, civil rights activist. During the 60s, he was a field secretary for SNCC. He also was an outspoken critic of the Vietnam War. And he's the founder of the Algebra Project, as I mentioned. He's also the author of Radical Equations, Civil Rights from Mississippi to the Algebra Project and co-editor of Quality Education as a Constitutional Right, Creating a Grassroots Movement to Transform Public Schools. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to pick up where we were. I asked you at the end of the last segment what you learned from the sit-ins and then what effect that had on you. I knew that something big was going on, right, because I knew about my uncle. I knew about, you know, what... Uh, the lynchings and stuff like that. So um, I went down to visit Uncle Bill on my spring break. And so at this point in my life, um, I've, I've been at Harvard. I've gotten an MA. So I graduate um, from Hamilton in 56. I spend a year at Harvard. I pick up my MA. I'm back there trying to get a doctorate when my mother passes. Right? She's really still young. She's in her early 40s. My father uh, just um, goes, um, he deteriorates, right, and he ends up uh, in the hospital. So I leave, um, go back uh, to New York, and um, get a job eventually teaching at uh, Horace Mann School, teaching math. And I'm there when the sit-ins break out. And so I go down on my spring break to see my Uncle Bill. Go down where? To Hampton, Virginia, right? So the students at Hampton are marching, demonstrating Newport News, right? So I march with them over and walk the picket line while they sit in. And Wyatt T. Walker comes down to do the mass meeting. Now, Wyatt eventually becomes the head of King's organization, right? Um, but right then, he's a, a minister in Petersburg. He announces that they're going to set up an office in Harlem to raise money for King. So um, I get all the information and go back and go to the organizing meeting. Bayard Rustin is running that organizing meeting and ran the office. Right? And so I go down every afternoon after school um, and volunteer at the office. And I meet Jack O'Dell, who, who later becomes uh, King's. Uh, over his citizenship program, helping to run the program that Septim McClark developed in South Carolina. So um, they actually, um, Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier headline 
the fundraising event. They do it at the armory where my father's working, right? The 369th Armory, right? And after the event, um, I asked Bayard if I can go down and work with King. I'm thinking he's still in Alabama. So he tells me, well, um, what, I'll send you to Ella Baker in Atlanta, right? So Ella was actually at that time King's executive director right, of SCLC. And so I, I get down that summer uh, to Atlanta, and uh, there in uh, the office, Ella has a, a little room in the office. King uses his father's uh, office at the church. Uh, Dora is his secretary, and Jane, Jane Stembridge, is a young white volunteer uh, who had been at um, uh, the Union Theological Seminary and came down to the meeting that Ella called that formed SNCC and volunteered to be the first executive secretary for SNCC. So she's in the office there. Um, we hit it off because philosophy and theology, right? We're talking all the time. Uh, and so that is where I learned about SNCC. Um, and that's where um, I begin the journey that eventually takes me to Mississippi. So what year are we in? So this is 1960. The sit-ins hit in February 1st, 1960. Uh, Ella had organized on Easter weekend in 1960 the conference uh, to bring the sit-in leaders together. Um, and she did that because um, Ella had been working across the South throughout the 30s, 40s, 50s. So she knew everybody. Um, who had actually worked in the South against this uh, racial apartheid, right? So um, she, made, through her contacts, got the sit-in leaders to come to her university. She graduated Shaw in uh, North Carolina, right? So at that meeting, she actually did something that um, impacted later all the work that I did, which was um, she uh, created a space um, that protected the organizers, the leaders of the sit-in from the older civil rights organizations that wanted them as a youth wing of the operation. Uh, so she kind of insisted and created a space so that they could come together and form their own organization. And that's how the SNCC uh, came into being. And that happened on that Easter weekend. So somewhere here, you decide, or it kind of happens, that this becomes your life. Well, what happens is um, the what they do, at the, they set up a coordinating committee. Um, Marion Barry uh, is the first chairperson. And while I'm working, I'm doing this volunteer work, I'm staying at the YMCA in Atlanta. Um, uh, the, the coordinating committee comes and has its first meeting that summer in Atlanta. Um, and they decide that they're going to have a conference in the fall for sit-in leaders from across the South. And Jane has to be the organizer for the conference, right? She's their secretary. And she comes to me and says, I have a problem. I don't have any names from Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana of any people who sat in or any kind of sit-in activity in those states. Um, 
and asked me if I will go scout, right? Um, so I agree. Um, she and Ella get together, and Ella knows all of the really NACP or SCLC leadership in those states, gives the contact information to Jane. Jane writes letters to them uh, saying that SNCC is sending uh, its field representative right, uh, to come. And uh, so I take off. They put me on a Greyhound bus. I take off. Talladega, Birmingham, Clarksdale, Cleveland, Jackson, Shreveport, New Orleans, um, and uh, Biloxi, Gulfport, Biloxi, Mobile, back to Atlanta. And now you'd been in New York. Clearly, there was a black world and a white world, but you'd been in this, uh, you know, elite education. But is this your first? Real drenching in the deep south. Yeah, this is the first time. I mean, our family once, I, I know at least once, maybe twice, our whole family when we were young went down to visit Uncle Bill. Right. Um, so how, how did that feel? What was the impression? Well, I was young. Right. I'm no, I mean, this trip. This trip now? Yeah. yeah. So um, I'm a scout. Right. Uh, I'm also somehow representing this a very militant sit-in organization. Uh, there's an expectation. Um, so at the bus stop in Atlanta, they're watching to see where I sit when I get on, right? So I sit up front until we get to the Georgia line, and I go back. So when the bus hit Aniston, which is where later the Freedom Rider bus was bombed, the highway patrol guy comes on, but I'm in the back. He can't tell me from anybody else. I, um, when I go to Clarksdale, right, uh, Aaron Henry sees me off. Um, they're watching where I sit. I sit up front, but no, nobody else is on the bus. And so, uh, um, but when I get to Cleveland, uh, and he, he's working at the post office, they've actually cut his hours down. So, uh, he only works Saturdays, right? Um, but he he's not home. I go over to the post office. But he tells me the rumor is that the Freedom Riders, that these sit-in riders have come to town. Right. So, um, but really, I'm really um, working as uh, a scout, undercover, so to speak. I'm I'm trying to be as inconspicuous as I can. But but the, you you now direct experience with the apartheid, I mean, it's not that it doesn't exist in New York, but it doesn't exist to the extent it did in the South. Does any, did, did that impress you in a specific way, or is, is kind of just what you expected? Um, so, um, well, what I'm, I'm being exposed to is, um, and really through Amzi, it was the first one who really begins to take me in. I spend several days there, um, and Amzi is the one who tells us what we should do, right? I mean, he really is the one that, that says, he's sitting on, he's, he's compiling information about voter registration in the Delta, and it blows my mind because um, I've been to all these schools, but no one, and we're talking about, you know, the Iron Curtain, people are giving lectures, 
at Harzman and everybody, all these people have to vote over there in Eastern Europe and everything. And no one, nobody ever said anything about this congressional district in Mississippi, which is 80% black in terms of eligible voters that has never sent a black person to Congress. Man. All right. Um, all right. Pause, so pause it right there. Pause it right there. Um, is plotting how he's, how we're going to. And all right. Pause it right there, Anthony. Or Jalen. And the youth energy. He's the only one. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, we're going to continue that clip on tomorrow's show. That's from the real news. That's on YouTube. Uh, Bob Moses is talking about the formation of SNCC in uh, during Easter 1960. OK. And he talked about this congressional district in Mississippi that was 80 percent black and it never sent an African-American to uh, <laughs> to uh, Congress. There was a I, I referenced the book, this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed. How guns made the civil rights movement possible. OK, I'm going to talk about that for a minute. Uh, we're going to go to clip three in just a minute, guys. Uh, uh, then with Jamaica. But this piece right here from uh, SnakeDigital.org. Bob Moses talked about Marion Barry, two time mayor of Washington, D.C. Marion Barry was the first chairman of SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And this piece here from uh, from SnickDigital.org talks about the formation of SNCC. An important aspect of the black power idea was centered on gaining elected office. And SNCC's first chairman, Marion Barry, personified this. He got his start in the Nashville sit-in movement and later became the second African-American mayor of Washington, D.C. As a graduate student in chemistry, at Fisk University, Fisk University in the late 1950s, Marion Barry was committed to campus activism. On February 3rd, 1960, Marion Barry joined 124 other students, several of, of who, like John Lewis and Diane Nash, um, would also help found SNCC uh, later in about April or so of, uh, of uh, 1960, a couple of two or three months later in organizing a series of sit-ins in downtown Nashville. This is the, this is the Nashville, Tennessee uh, uh, protest, and then it's going to lead to the Nashville, Tennessee boycott of the downtown business district during Easter 1960. They deal with this in episode three of Eyes on the Prize uh, called Ain't Scared of Your Jails. They deal with this whole protest and sit-in, all right? Uh, this kind of direct political action was characteristic of Marion Barry's approach. Quote, you don't talk about making a change. You do something about it. You don't talk about making a change. You do something about it. OK, so he wasn't trying to hashtag his way to freedom. I guess I guess you could say uh, they weren't. <laughs> they didn't think they were going to hashtag their way uh, to what they wanted. OK, so read this here from uh, SNCDigital.org. Uh, Mar uh, this is about Marion Barry. We'll post this link here on the thread of a broadcast. Now, also, I, I talked about uh, the book, This Nonviolent Stuff That Gets You Killed, How Guns Made the Civil Rights Movement Possible. And I'm looking through five stacks of books and the um, book bookcase behind me, and I still can't find my copy of the book. It's somewhere here. Uh, but if we I, I want to I've talked about this before. If we look at um, here, this is on Amazon. 
not saying buy from Amazon, check with your local African-American book dealer, but they have a synopsis of the book here. Uh, the synopsis of the book. Now, this is written by Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr., okay, who was a field secretary for SNCC for five years in rural Mississippi. Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. And you can you should be able to Google, it should be on YouTube, the interview that uh Roland Martin did with them on News One Now. Okay. But here's a synopsis of the book. Visiting Martin Luther King Jr. At the peak of the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott, which is December 5th, 1955 to, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, December 5th, 1955 to December 20th, 1956. Okay. It lasts 381 days. Um, visiting Martin Luther King Jr. at the peak of the Montgomery, Alabama bus boycott, journalist William Worthy, journal, journalist William Worthy, um, uh, almost sat on a loaded pistol just for self-defense dr king assured him just for self-defense dr king assured him it was not the only weapon dr king kept for for such a purpose one of his advisors remembered the reverend's montgomery alabama home as an arsenal as an arsenal this is Turn the other cheek, Dr. King, that they, they see, they don't when every Dr. King day and they talk about the I have a dream speech and the original name of the speech wasn't I have a dream. The original name of the speech was normalcy. Never again. Then, then the name is going to be changed to a cancel check. The speech wasn't about a, a dream, as I've said before, when you study the history of it. When even even in the first eyes on the prize series, they didn't talk about African-Americans owning guns. They ain't talking about Dr. King owning guns either. OK, they got a little more radical with the second eyes on the prize series when they interview Kwame Ture and they talk about the deacons for defense and justice, things like this. But they don't deal with that in the first eyes on the prize series, even though there's good information there. But they just leave some stuff out. I mean, the first eyes on the prize series, they only they only deal with Malcolm X for about 90. And that's like in 60, that's like 64, 65. They only deal with Malcolm X for like 90 seconds. Now, like King, many ostensibly nonviolent civil rights activists embrace their constitutional right to self-protection. Yet this crucial dimension of the Afro-American freedom struggle has been long ignored by history and mainstream media also. And Dr. King celebration sponsored by uh, corporations, every Dr. King day, all that stuff. They don't, they don't talk about this stuff here. Like Dr. King, many ostensibly nonviolent civil rights activists, which means on the surface, it gives the appearance, but underneath is something different. They use the cover of it looking like a nonviolent movement, but it's Negroes with guns protecting the civil rights workers. Civil rights activists embrace their constitutional right to self-protection, yet this crucial dimension of the Afro-American freedom struggle has long has been long ignored by history. In this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed, Civil rights scholar Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. describes the vital role, the vital role that armed self-defense, the vital role that armed self-defense played in the in the civil uh, in the uh, survival and liberation of African-American communities in America during the Southern freedom movement of the 1960s in the deep south. African-Americans often safeguarded themselves and their loved ones from white supremacists 
violence by bearing and when necessary, using firearms. All these, most of these civil rights leaders own guns. Fannie Lou Hamer talks about, I keep a shot. I'm going to clean it up here for FCC regulated radio. But Fannie Lou Hamer said, I keep a shotgun in every corner of my bedroom. And the first white man that looks like he's going to throw some dynamite on my porch won't live to write his mother. That's that's Fannie Lou Hamer. See, we know the quote, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, but they don't talk about Fannie Lou Hamer owning guns. In much the same way, Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. shows nonviolent civil rights workers received critical support from black gun owners in the regions where they worked. If it had not been for Negroes with guns, there would not have been a civil rights movement. Whether patrolling their neighborhoods, garrisoning, uh, uh, garrisoning their homes or firing back at attackers, these courageous men and women and the weapons they carried were crucial to the movement's success, to the movement's success, giving voice to the World War II veterans, rural activists, volunteer security guards and self-defense groups who took up arms to defend their lives and liberties. The book, this nonviolent stuff that gets you killed, how guns made the civil rights movement possible, lays bare the paradoxical relationship between the nonviolent civil rights struggle and the second amendment. Drawing on his firsthand experiences in the civil rights movement, and interviews with fellow participants. Professor Charles E. Cobb Jr. provides a controversial examination of the the crucial place of firearms in the fight for American freedom. Read this book here. So the next Dr. King Day celebration should be different than a lot of this other Simple Simon ass stuff that people have been masquerading as Dr. King Day celebration. I'm just saying, okay? If we ain't going to do it right, don't do it at all. A lot of this BS masquerading is not the key. When I interviewed Mukasa Dada, Willie Ricks, who helped coin the term black power, and he was friends with Dr. King. He said every Dr. King day he cries. Yeah, he misses Dr. King, but he cries because of what's masquerading as celebrations of Dr. King that don't really tell the truth about Dr. King and the civil rights movement and things like this. All right. Okay. Uh, let's shift gears here. I want to get to this clip here dealing with uh, uh, Jamaica. All right. So we talked about Jamaica. We're going to go to clip three. We talked about Jamaica uh, petitioning Great Britain and Queen Elizabeth II for reparations. We talked about this uh, last week sometime. I don't remember when. Uh, all these all these shows are archived. You can go back and watch it. We rebroadcast these shows throughout the day on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I-M-H-O-T-E-P. So uh, on the Cross Connection with Tiffany Cross uh, on MSNBC on Saturday, July 24th, she discussed this topic and she had my friend on, uh, uh, Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, who is uh, a nephew of one of my teachers, Dr. Leonard Jeffries, okay? And they talked about... Um, Jamaica seeking reparations from Great Britain. Let's go to this clip. 
Joining me now is historian Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, editor of Understanding and Teaching the Civil Rights Movement, and Henry Bonsu, journalist and freelance broadcaster based in London. Gentlemen, I'm very excited to have this discussion. This discussion, very happy to have you with me. Henry, I want to start with you because. I think a lot of folks in America assume that black Americans were the only enslaved people. There are like social media movements that are very uh, anti-immigrant when it comes to other black folks. But the diaspora has been largely impacted uh, by Europe, uh, quite frankly. Given the atrocities that uh, the UK brought upon black people who were enslaved, what are the chances that Jamaicans will see any kind of reparations from the crown? I think the chances are slim to none if you are talking about money directly from the British government going directly to the Jamaican government in reparations for slavery, anything like the 10.6 or so billion dollars that were quoted. Why? Well, listen to what David Cameron said when he was in Jamaica five, six years ago. He said, let's move on as friends. Let's um, accept that something awful happened, but we are now the best of friends, we're partners, and we will try and develop together. We'll try and put this behind us. Um, Boris Johnson, the current prime minister, is a celebrant of all things empire. He's urged the British people to, yes, acknowledge the evil that went on, but consider Britain to be a benign power in the world, a force for good. When it comes to slavery, that was an awful thing that happened over there in the Americas. It was appalling. Just like what happened to George Floyd was appalling. What Britain helped to end slavery. Britain was not the great enslaver. Of course, those of us in uh, the African and Caribbean communities, the activists who hold reparations march is every year, we would beg to differ, and quite strongly. Uh, not only do you beg to differ, history does. I mean, Hassan, uh, Britain, uh, during the slave trade between 1640 and 1807, uh, it's estimated that Britain transported 3.1 million Africans uh, to the Caribbean, to North America, and to South America. So given this latest global uh, discussion around reparations, um, what impact could this have on the reparations debate right here in this country? Well, the reparations debate needs to be a global debate because the transatlantic slavery was just that. Uh, it was a global commerce, a global trade in human beings. That's how the hell we got here, Tiffany. Uh, it wasn't by accident. Uh, it was on the, the ships of enslavers. Uh, and so it needs to be a global debate. African-Americans should not just focus on sort of reparations solely for the descendants of enslaved people in the Americas. Certainly there's an American component, there's an American responsibility. Uh, but there is a British component. There is a French component. We can't understand the current economies of the Caribbean. We can't understand the current economies and political situations on the continent of Africa or even for us as African-Americans without under putting it into a global context as it connects to the transatlantic slave trade. It's a very good point. And I mean, look, we could talk about this all day. Um, but Henry, because this is originating, it was a fight between Jamaica and the UK. I'm curious because this is not the first time uh, this uh, reparations debate came about in 2015. You already talked about David Cameron's response at the time, very consistent with other UK leaders. But I do feel like there is a shift in the conversation happening right now. You mentioned George Floyd um, in, in the English city of Bristol. People toppled uh, a, a statue there of a former enslaver. Can the people in Britain, uh, the descendants of the enslaved in Britain, rise up? And, and I should make this point for our viewers. The folks who are enslaved in Britain, um, they didn't start out there. You know, they, they came there uh, to Africa, so um, or, or from Africa, rather. Is it possible that the folks in Britain can aid this fight? 
Well, just as there were huge numbers of British people in the 18th century who mobilized, who petitioned, who supported politicians in the House of Commons and showed that they thought what was happening in the Caribbean was appalling, was immoral and unchristian, now we're seeing people since the death of George Floyd looking at receipts. They're putting huge pressure on major companies that made millions, if not billions, out of the transatlantic slave trade, like Lloyd's of London, like the universities of Oxford, Cambridge, Glasgow, like the great museums, like the thousands of houses and historical stately homes in London, in Bristol, in Liverpool, that um, denote their wealth and their heritage from the transatlantic slave trade. And we're seeing people picketing now wealthy Tory MPs who are the distant relatives of uh, slavers, of planters. And this is not going away. And as a result of the pressure, we're seeing uh, museums being named. So, and also business centres like the Cass Museum, the Jeffrey Museum, the all the slave traders who made huge amounts of money off the backs of enslaved and murdered Africans three or so years ago left major endowments. But now people are saying, right, we've seen the receipts. We think you need to pay. If the British government doesn't want to, we can target you companies and landowners individually. We're not going to get away with that. That pressure is going to tell. It's not going away. Well, I, I do just want to read a statement that we did get from uh, the UK. We asked the British government about Jamaica's pending request. A spokesman for the Foreign uh, Commonwealth and Development Office said there is no disputing the horrors of what occurred during the slave trade and the colonial period. While we acknowledge that the wounds uh, run very deep, we believe that the most effective way for the UK today to respond to the cruelty of the past is to ensure that current and future generations do not forget what happened and to address modern day slavery and racism. Um, Hassan, that's quite oh, a word yeah. salad that doesn't really say anything. <laughs> I hear you, Henry. Uh, Hassan, let, let me ask you the, the frustration, and I trust me, Henry, I echo your frustration. Um, the nerve, you know, the caucasity of, of that statement uh, when we set our eyes on the world and look at how systemic white supremacy is still impacting all of us. If you could, if you're able, even what's happening in Haiti is a direct result of what came out of Europe. Um, what, what's your thought on their statement and, and the landscape that we see today? Well, let's, let's remember that the British government uh, just finished paying off enslavers, uh, compensating them, you know, for 181 years. Uh, they, they've been paying former enslavers and the descendants of enslavers uh, following uh, emancipation, following the abolition of slavery. Uh, and, and, and we see the same thing in Haiti. The French government forcing uh, the Haitian government uh, for more than a century uh, to pay compensation uh, for their own freedom uh, that has led to uh, the current uh, uh, destabilization. Uh, in the, in, in, All right, in hey, the pause it right there, guys. I mean, the pause it right there. That the British government or, or any uh, former uh, nation that supported... Uh, yeah, yeah, stop the clip right there, uh, Anthony and or Jalen. Just to remember, while at the same time, uh, that, that, that... All right, pause the clip right there. Okay, guys, uh, those watching on Facebook and YouTube, keep watching. We're going to keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. To finish up this clip, we'll talk briefly about Emmett Till. We'll talk more about this on Monday's show. Um, be sure to register for uh, my new 10-week uh, online course. 
uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. This class meets on Saturdays, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do the class live. All the sessions are recorded. As soon as you register, you can watch um, class number one. Okay, and then we'll see you back in class uh, on Saturdays uh, for class number two. All right. Uh, remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right. Stand by, everybody. Stand by. Okay. All right. Also, if you like this type of information, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Then also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. All right. Um, we're going to keep going for a couple more minutes here. There were a couple of articles I was showing while we were listening to that clip uh, from uh, uh, Cross Connection, Tiffany Cross's show. So you have uh, this one here from Reuters. We talked about this one a few days ago here on the show from Reuters. Jamaica plans to seek um, Jamaica plans to seek reparations from Britain over slavery. So read this article. But I want to go to page two of the article. An estimated 600,000 Africans were shipped to toil in Jamaica, according to the uh, National Library of Jamaica. Seized from Spain by the English in 1655, because Jamaica is conquered by Columbus and the Spanish in 1494. Seized from Spain by the English in 1655, Jamaica was a British colony until it became independent in 1962. The West Indian country of almost three million people is part of the Commonwealth, part of the Commonwealth, and the British uh, monarch remains head of state. OK, the British monarch remains head of state of Great Britain, even though uh, of Jamaica, even though Jamaica declared its independence in uh, 1962. Now, Britain prohibited uh, trade in slaves uh, in its empire in 1807. That's the importation of Africans to be slaves. That's the international transatlantic slave trade. They abolished that in 1807. The U.S. abolished it in 1808. But they did not formally abolish the practice of slavery until 1834. OK, to compensate British slave owners, the British government took out a 20 million pound loan, a very large sum at the time, and only finished paying off the ensuing interest payments in 2015. The, the British government, they paid reparations to about 46,000 British slave owners, but did not pay reparations to the Africans they enslaved or their or their descendants. The reparations petition is based on a private motion by Jamaican lawmaker Mike Henry, who said it's worth some 7.6 billion pounds, a sum he estimated is roughly equivalent to today in today's terms to what British to what Great Britain paid to slave owners, the reparations Great Britain paid to slave owners. So it's estimated it's about $10 billion uh, that they're talking about. Okay. All right. So read this article here from uh, Reuters.com, Jamaica plans to seek reparations from Britain over slavery. And this is from uh, July 12, 2021. All right. 
And then this other piece um, from this is from theguardian.com. And we talked about this. And we, I, deal with, uh, I deal with this in my online cl- class also. Uh, ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. But when we talked about Jamaica a few days ago here in the show, I showed you this article. This is from, I think it's 2015. Yes, September 30, 2015. Uh, David Cameron, who was then prime minister of Great Britain, was planning a trip to Jamaica. The Jamaicans were saying they wanted an official apology for slavery and they wanted reparations. David Cameron, this article here, Jamaica should move on from painful legacy of slavery, says David Cameron. And uh, David Cameron said, let's see here. uh, David Cameron has called for Jamaica and the UK to move on from the deep wounds caused by slavery, but ducked official calls for Britain to apologize for its role uh, for, for its role or pay reparations. Speaking to the Caribbean uh, country's parliament, Prime Minister David Cameron, this is in 2016, struck a defiant note as he spoke of his pride that Britain had played a part in abolishing the abhorrent trade, slave trade, without highlighting its historic involvement in the transfer of African slaves from West Africa and ownership of slaves in the Caribbean. He called for the two countries to, quote, move on from this painful legacy and continue to build for the future. Well, it's easy to move on when you have something to move with. You, you A lot of the wealth that Great Britain has is built on the backs of exploiting Africans in Jamaica, okay, in other colonies and in Nigeria and Kenya and things like this. Uh, so read this article here. Jamaica should move on from painful legacy of slavery. OK, uh, David Cameron said in 2016, prime minister of Great Britain, it's easy to move on when you have something to move with. This is why in uh, 2018, uh, when uh, Meghan Markle married Prince Harry, I told you she's marrying into a family of colonizers. I'm not calling them colonizers because they're white. I'm calling them colonizers because 100 years ago, one fifth of the world population lived under British rule. OK, she married into a family of colonizers. All right. Uh, we're going to see, uh, let me go back to this clip here from, uh, the cross connection and then we'll squeeze this in quickly dealing with uh, Emmett Till. We'll talk more about Emmett Till on uh, tomorrow's show. Uh, okay. Let's go to this here. That, that a queue up. All right. We'll come back to that in just a second here. And then, um, okay, we'll go to this, the Emmett Till. Uh, Emmett Till would have been 80 years old today, uh, and he's being honored by two uh, Mississippi um, two Mississippi museums, okay? Let's go back to this clip here from uh, the Cross Connection. Going away. 
Well, I, I do just want to read a statement that we did get from uh, the UK. We asked the British government about Jamaica's pending request. A spokesman for the Foreign uh, Commonwealth and Development Office said there is no disputing the horrors of what occurred during the slave trade and the colonial period. While we acknowledge that the wounds uh, run very deep, we believe that the most effective way for the UK today to respond to the cruelty of the past is to ensure that current and future generations do not forget what happened and to address modern day slavery and racism. Um, Hassan, that's quite oh, the word yes. salad that doesn't really say anything. <laughs> I hear you, Henry. Uh, Hassan, let, let me ask you the, the frustration. And I trust me, Henry, I echo your frustration. Um, the nerve, you know, the caucasity of, of that statement. Uh, when we set our eyes on the world and look at how systemic white supremacy is still impacting all of us. If you could, if you're able, even what's happening in Haiti is a direct result of what came out of Europe. Um, what, what's your thought on their statement and, and the landscape that we see today? Well, uh, let's let's remember that the British government uh, just finished paying off enslavers, uh, compensating them. You know, for 181 years uh, they they've been paying former enslavers and the descendants of enslavers uh, following uh, emancipation, following the abolition of slavery. Uh, and, and, and we see the same thing in Haiti, the French government forcing uh, the Haitian government uh, for more than a century uh, to pay compensation uh, for their own freedom uh, that has led to uh, the current uh, uh, destabilization uh, in, the, in, in the nation as a whole. So, I mean, the idea that the British government or, or any uh, former uh, nation that supported uh, enslavement would say, hey, let's, it's good enough just to remember, while at the same time uh, that, that, that they have been extracting and paying of former enslavers is just patently absurd as well as hypocritical. Okay, so that is from uh, Cross Connection by Tiffany, uh, Tiffany Cross on MSNBC. So check out that clip here. Also, uh, check out this article. We'll probably talk about this uh, some more tomorrow's show. Uh, I talked about this a little bit when it came out. This is from USA Today. Uh, this deals with uh, this deals with Great Britain paying uh, reparations to slave owners. Fact check: United Kingdom finished paying off debts to slave owning families in 2015. This is uh, from June 30th, uh, 2020. USA Today. Uh, so check that out also. All right. Very quickly here. Uh, let's look at this piece here on uh, there's an article from the grill.com com uh, dealing with uh, Emmett Till. Uh, Emmett Till's birthday uh, to be honored by two Mississippi museums. Emmett Till's birthday to be honored by two Mississippi museums. Uh, July 25th would have been Emmett Till's 80th birthday. Uh, to commemorate, let me flip over to this here. To uh, commemorate his life, two museums in Mississippi, the state where he was murdered, will honor him. Both the uh, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum and the uh, Mississippi and the Museum of Mississippi History, which are located side by side in Jackson, Mississippi, will give a 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. guided tour, a 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. guided tour that will highlight um, Emmett Till's 
uh, life and legacy. As stated in the Facebook uh, event post, each museum will also be offering free admission from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central uh, Time. There's a uh, tweet here from uh, Bernice King, uh, daughter of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott King, that talks about uh, uh, Emmett Till. Let me uh, put this here. All right, if we look at this, um, hashtag Emmett Till would have turned 80 years old today, thinking of and praying for his family, remembering the grief and courage of his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, devastating still. Now, as uh, Pamela, Pamela, Pamela D.C. Jr., director of both museums, said as we embark on the birthday of our beloved Emmett Till, let's reflect on how this young man created a movement of people who wanted more for themselves and their communities. In honor of the day that he was born, July 24th, July 25th, 1941, uh, the two Mississippi museums will offer free admission to our visitors to read and learn more about the life of this 14-year-old who was taken from the world too soon, end quote. Now, Emmett Till, a native of Chicago, Illinois, was visiting uh, what was sent by his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, to visit uh, with his extended family for the first time near Money, Mississippi in the summer of 1955. Um, in the early morning, early morning hours of August 28, 1955, a group of white men, um, J.W. Milliman and Roy Bryant, entered the home of Emmett Till's relatives where he was staying, abducted him, beat him, killed him, and dumped him, uh, dumped his body over a bridge into a river because it was alleged that he made a romantic pass at a white woman, Carolyn Bryant, outside of a grocery store uh, in town. During Emmett Till's funeral, uh, Mamie Till elected to keep her son's casket open, keep her son, ca keep her son's casket open so that everyone could see his bloated, mutilated face and remain. She said, I want the world to see what they did uh, to uh, to. Uh, uh, she said, let the people see what they did to my boy. And this was on the cover of uh, well, this was in Jet Magazine. Jet Magazine covered it. African-American newspapers covered this as well as the. Uh, trial, okay, the sham of a trial of Roy Bryan and J.W. Miller. Now, uh, let the people see what they did to my boy, Mamie said, according to Emmett Till's biography reported by NPR, National Public Radio. Those photos of Emmett Till and his casket ran in Jet Magazine and other African-American publications. It would be 30 years be, uh, later that most Americans would see the damage done to her son as the image led the renowned Eyes on the Prize documentary, as well as a half a half hour documentary on Emmett Till that aired in 1985 per uh, National Public Radio. Because Eyes on the Prize starts out with the lynching of Emmett Till. The two white men, Roy Bryant, uh, Carol, uh, Carolyn Bryant's husband, and, J and John W. Millum, J.W. Millum, uh, John William Millam, also known as J.W. Millam, Roy, uh, uh, Roy Bryant's half-brother, were in indicted for Emmett Till's abduction and, and murder. Uh, 
However, according to the United States Civil Rights uh, Trail, uh, both men. Uh, I think it's the civil rights trial. Both men were acquitted by a jury made of all white males in 2008. Carolyn Bryan admitted that Emmett Till never made a pass at her. Uh, when her confession was published in a 2017 book, the previously closed case of Emmett Till's murder was reopened by the United States Justice Department. Also, so those two white men were acquitted in killing Emmett Till. Then a few months later, they did an interview in Look Magazine and they were paid $4,000 for that interview and they admitted it, killing Emmett Till in that interview. Everybody knew they killed Emmett Till before the trial. They admitted killing Emmett Till in that interview, but since they were acquitted, because of double jeopardy laws, he could not be tried again. Um, so here's a picture of uh, Emmett Till also. Read the rest of this article here from thegrio.com. Uh, Emmett Till's birthday to be honored by uh, two Mississippi museums, okay? And this is by uh, Matthew Allen for thegrio.com, July 25th, 2021. All right, look, we have to get out of here. Uh, once again, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. Also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. We're six days a week. This helps us to keep doing the research, keep broadcasting, uh, finance the show, uh, pay some of the bills, etc. We're going to post a link here. Uh, also visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And you can uh, register for the uh, new 10 week online course uh, that I'm teaching uh, 10 consecutive uh, Saturdays from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. We do this on Saturdays, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Click right here and register here. This is right on the home page of our website. It takes you to the next page and uh, you can uh, just click on uh, enroll. And as soon as you enroll, you can watch class one It's archived. We have some bonus content that you can watch. You'll also get as a bonus um, in a digital download format. You'll also get uh, my six uh, le my six uh, lecture bundle pack. Black Migration 1619 2019 Black Migration 1619 to 2019. You'll also get that um, uh, as a bonus as well. OK. All right. Look, we have to get out of here. Uh, remember, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world because right now it's correct wrong behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. Uh, we're here Monday through Friday, 11 p.m. to 12 midnight Eastern Standard Time, and we're here Sundays, uh, 9 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, here on Sundays also, okay? And we'll post a link here so you can register for uh, this new 10 week online course. And this picks up where uh, the first course, uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, leads off. All right. Right now, it's correct for own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace.